but I also want to make sure whether it's Roadrunners or other organizations, I could share with them the importance of making sure that diversity, equity, inclusion is not something you do. It's who you are. Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hello, I'm Ines Babea. Hi, I'm Nathan Schiller. And I'm Jamie Chen. Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. Our guest today is Mitchell Silver, who was New York City Parks Commissioner from 2014 until 2021, and he will forever be the People's Commissioner. Under his tenure, the Parks Department named the Central Park Loop the Ted Corbett Loop after one of the founders and the only Black president of New York Roadrunners. Yeah, Jamie, and I'd like to frame our sports legacy segment in that context. So I'll start with um, November 3rd, 2007, which was the day that the men's Olympic marathon trials for 2008 were held in Central Park. I actually remember that race really well because I spent an inside of the course dashing from the east side to the west side so I could watch these elite runners as many times as possible on that six mile loop. And it was amazing, but there was also this incredible historical element because Central Park was the original home of the New York City Marathon from 1970 to 1975. And then in 1976, it switched to the five borough format that we're all familiar with today. Um, you mentioned Ted Corbett. He had run all of those marathons and many more. His final New York City Marathon was in 1999 when he was 80 years old. Um, the People's Commissioner, Mr. Silver, you helped get the loop named after him. Really curious, what is the significance of this? Well, it was very significant. I think it's very important that we share the Black experience in all of our public spaces. And the renaming for Ted Corbett really came out of uh, a year-long effort, really after the whole Black Lives Matter movement, to take a look at our public spaces and to share the Black experience. And how it came about is quite simple, is that I was running around Central Park one day and happened to pass the Fred LeBeau statue, kind of a temporary statue on 90th Street, I'm like saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. As we were naming all these spaces, where is Ted Corbett? And so I think it was important that we uh, would recognize his contributions, as you stated, huge impact, kind of the grandfather of long distance running and knew that Ted probably ran Central Park many, many times. His sweat is literally in the asphalt. And so for Black History Month, after we renamed some 28 spaces, and being a runner, I wanted to be able to make that change. As a commissioner, I have the power and authority to rename spaces. We did a research to make sure the loop was Parks property. It was. And so uh, in, during Black History Month, we invited you know, Gary Corbett, he couldn't make it, but a lot of the other running crews throughout New York City to come and to celebrate this magical moment. So now officially the 6.2 mile loop in Central Park is now the Ted Corbett Loop. There's a sign on the northern part near Harlem, and then all the blades uh, along the road will also be named Ted Corbett. So it was very exciting that I could play a role in recognizing a giant and hero, a black hero in the running community. Can you talk about the process mechanically of how that happened? And did you face sure. any resistance at all 
in this? Well, typically when I do a renaming, we have certain rules. A person has to be passed away at least three years, deceased. They had to have some connection to the space. Uh, they, we usually like to have some community support, but as commissioner, I can just go ahead and rename a space. As I stated earlier, uh, we started this effort back in June of 2020. I've always renamed public spaces and we would get recommendations from the community. But after Black Lives Matter talking to staff, we want to be very explicit about renaming public spaces throughout New York City. We started with Juneteenth Grove in Cabin Plaza uh, in June of 2020. And then I wanted to make sure we were going to continue this effort throughout the year. So it wasn't just a one and done renaming. And so the process is we do the research, we see if it was named after anyone else. It turned out the lower loop was renamed uh, after someone. And so, but the entire 6.2 mile loop was not renamed. And so we did the research, find out I had the power to do it, made sure that it wasn't Department of Transportation's jurisdiction, but Park's jurisdiction. So we, there is some research entailed. And then as an official document that I sign, and that makes the renaming. And then we have the routed signs. In this case, because it's a roadway, the Department of Transportation agreed to do the street blade signs, which will be coming in later. So that essentially is the process for uh, Central Park, the loop, as well as all the other parks were renamed uh, throughout New York City. That is a fascinating process, actually, um, to involve all the different departments. Um, I want to take it back a little bit um, and talk about your running. Specifically, you started track and cross country in middle school and in high school. I think you ran 880 yards, the mile and the two mile. What got you into running? All right. So this is kind of a funny story. Initially, we started running because my brother and I tried other sports, soccer, baseball. But back then, gangs used to recruit you and they would meet you on corners and so my brother and I thought a way to avoid getting caught by the recruiting gang members uh, was to outrun them. And we did, but we then fell in love with the sport. So starting in the seventh grade, uh, we started running. And so by high school, when the recruiting really started to take place, they just got exhausted. They couldn't catch us. Uh, but we fell in love with the sport, ran uh, in elementary school. Then it got really, really serious in high school. That's where I ran course country for the first time at Van Cortland. And then when we shifted to indoor and outdoor, yes, then it was yards. So it was 880 yards, thousand yards, mile, two mile. Those were my specialty, both indoor and outdoor cross country, as you know, can go a mile and a quarter to two and a half. And so uh, that's when my brother and I really fell in love with the sport. And uh, at the same time, got great legs, but also were able to outrun anyone who wanted to chase us down. Can you tell us what the running scene was like in like the 70s? I find that you're in a unique situation. Yeah. You've been able to see changes to running in New York City over the past few decades to where we are now. Well, I have. For one, uh, we had to be careful the neighborhoods we ran in. I mean, we went to Midwood High School and running down Ocean Parkway, we tried to tell our coach, you got to be careful where we're running because a lot of the white kids did not like us in their neighborhoods. It was very territorial. I remember these sodas called Hoffman, thick glass, and they were throwing the bottles off at us off the truck. So we begged our coach, please don't make us run down Ocean Parkway toward Coney Island. So we did ship gears and we ran toward Prospect Park where it was a bit safer. So back then there were certain neighborhoods you couldn't go in. Uh, in terms of the outfits and the clothes, Nike and Tiger and Adidas, 
Puma. Those were some of the popular running shoes. Uh, our outfits were shorty shorts, the, the tube socks with the stripes. So it wasn't as cool and attractive as we have the running gear today. But for the most part, uh, I think that was kind of the gear and the clothes that we wore. Uh, but back then, um, it was uh, very competitive. Uh, each season had different top schools uh, for, you know, cross country. There were our competitors, you know, boys and girls, you know, they were fast, you know, South Shore, uh, Lincoln, Westinghouse. So you kind of knew the schools, Gompers. I always heard that name Gompers, and I don't know why somebody would name their school so weird as Gompers. Uh, but it was nice to get to know uh, some friends along the way. Uh, and so it was just a little bit different, but you had to be careful where you ran. And so at least our coach was very sensitive because he did not want to put us in harm's way. I'm still trying to picture what exactly will, will like the, the people that wanted to recruit you for the gang, would they just stand in a corner and offer you something? Because I also, I'm picturing, and then you said how it was rough to run an ocean parkway. So I'm picturing the movie, The Warriors about the gangs from Brooklyn. The that gangs were, were the Tomahawks. So yeah. I, I, this is exactly what I'm picturing. So please tell us more about this, this time. Well, first of all, they didn't have guns. They weren't down with that kind of violence. So, you know, you had sticks and chains, you know, what you kind of see in West Side Story. Uh, but the gangs were called the Jolly Stompers and the Tomahawks. And each one of them had different neighborhoods. And so they would just wait near bus stops because they knew we had to take the bus to go to school. And they would just be, who knows, 10, 12 of them. And they would recruit you to be part of their gang. And so I was terrified because I did not want to be part of a gang. Uh, so uh, they had divisions, different neighborhoods. And so that's what you had to do back then, that my brother and I did not want to be part of gangs. We wanted to go to school and uh, you know just run track. So uh, after the after a while, you know they, they they left us alone, and they knew they couldn't catch us. So that was the scene back then. But a lot of people in our neighborhood they actually had female divisions as well. It wasn't just male; it was also female. But those were the two predominant gangs back then. So if you kind of Google do your history, I don't know if they're still around, but over time they dissolved, and we just went on with our lives. I just remember I think in Brooklyn the biggest gangs in the eighties for me were the Deceps, Decepticons. They were run out of Coney Island. I don't know if you remember. I remember uh, that. Yeah, they, they were called oh. like the ha Hammer Gang or something like yeah. that. I, I used to see them a lot. And I think yeah. Latin Kings were like the two biggest ones. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I also remember running in the armory and that thing was wood and it was awful. You, they used to give you sticks to remember how many laps because <laughs> I ran two miles in the armory. And then we ran in Ward's Island when it was the old Ward's Island. It looked like you could drop a nuclear bomb and that thing wouldn't be destroyed. So we had to walk over the bridge to Randall's Island to run in Ward's Island. And so I vividly remember that. It was not a pleasant place, but that's where all the citywide competitions were held. Oh, and I'm still thinking about, you know, talking about running down Ocean Parkway and away from gangs. It might be strange for some of our listeners who are used to, you know, when you run up and down Ocean Parkway, you can get 20,000 people to run a Brooklyn half marathon these days. Like it's nothing. Times have changed. Look, it occurred to me when I ran the Brooklyn half for the first time, those memories didn't go away. And I remember it was around Avenue X or I can't remember, but uh, that memory started flooding back. Um, I avoided running down Ocean Parkway. We did some training runs and those memories were still there. And when I ran the Brooklyn half, those memories were still there. So they don't go away because that was, you know, terrifying. You know, our team had a mix of black and white. 
but to see that happen to you at a young age, I think that was one of my first encounters of just overt racism where they're screaming out of our neighborhood and there happened to be a delivery truck nearby and it was like bombs, you know, this soda when it was dropping, but luckily we were able to get away from it. But, you know, you don't forget that. You don't forget that at all. Well, especially Ocean Park, where it goes like, it connects like, um, what is it, Borough, you have Borough Park and Bensonhurst right. on the right-hand side of it. And I just remember the issue with like Yusuf Hawkins and Bensonhurst. And that was like in the 80s. I do remember that, yeah. So tell us, who were the athletes running the short distances and the long distance? Because I think as the running boom has happened, we've seen that for track, we see we tend to see mostly like African-American runners where the long distance game became more like, you know, white male dominated and like white female. So tell us who was running the short distances and long distance like back then? Well, you got it right. Most of the blacks were the sprinters and hurdlers, had big, gigantic quads. Oh my goodness. Uh, and then, but they ran also, you know, the four, well, I'll convert it from yards to meters. So I would say the 100, 200, and 400 and hurdlers were dominated uh, by blacks back then. And then you started seeing a mix once you got to the 800 meters and a mile. As you started getting further, it started to get more white. We also had a lot of black high jumpers and long jumpers and triple jumpers. So that consisted of our team. But I have to say, yes, the sprinters were dominated by blacks. And then once you got to about a mile and over, uh, you started seeing more white runners. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I mean, I did try sprinting, but I kind of enjoyed uh, the 800 meters was extremely painful. I just didn't like the 400. Yeah. So we ran a couple of events. Uh, 800, all I can tell, someone asked me, what is it like? And I said, can I punch you in the stomach? And they go, why? I said, because that's what it feels like. Um, but 800 or the 880 then was just that kind of race. I love the mile. You know, at the age of 14, I almost broke five minutes at the age of 14. I ran a 500.3, that close. Uh, but I decided uh, in college, they shifted me to 800 meters. And that's when the pain really started because it was another level of competition. So um, I, I don't know why um, different people ran different races. It's just, that's just how it was. You know, it's a conversation at all with among your teammates or even with the coaches, did the coaches just like steer you to steer you, steer the team to a different, how, how did that exactly no. happen? Did they never encourage in high school, you? No. In high school, no. In, yeah, I'm sorry. In high school, no. In college, yes. When I joined the team, they told me they needed 800 meters. I did not want to run 800 meters, but, you know, as we were competing, they told me that was the spot or at least the distance I had to run. So I had to really learn how to run 800 meters quite well. High school was different. I think they let us kind of choose and our coach looked at our capabilities. I loved cross country and I did well on, a, I think as a freshman, a mile and a quarter in Van Cortland. And so very quickly he had me focus on the mile. But once you go outdoor and indoor, you know, your limited options. So I would either run the one mile or the two mile, but over time when I got to college, ended up doing the 800 meters. Painful. Did you? I did not like the 800 meters at all. You, you went to high school in Brooklyn. Did you feel that the population was diverse, which is probably why um, I think you were able to do cross country? It was diverse, but people kind of stayed in their ethnic enclaves. So the Brownsville, Bed-Stuy, Flatbush, East Flatbush, they were primarily black. And then you get to Bensonhurst, Bay Ridge, Canarsie. You kind of knew the neighborhoods you needed to stay out of. It was just known growing up. And so we respected those boundaries and they respected our boundaries. 
So that was the 70s. Uh, not sure, I think it started to change in the 80s and 90s as there was kind of the, after the blackout of 77, you saw this huge white migration to go to Long Island and upstate and Staten Island. And I think you started to see a change in some of the neighborhoods. So I think in the 80s, because of that blackout that horrified people, you started seeing the neighbors change over. But in the 70s, you had to know your neighborhood and you had to be careful about crossing those boundaries. Can I talk about your training? Because I know that you are still running marathons. <laughs> and I know you're, you have a couple of big ones coming up. Where do you train for your long runs? I, I mean, I'm struggling to find scenery. So where have you been well, training for your long yeah. runs? Well, in New York, luckily, I'm training for Chicago. So I was able to get my 18. That was my longest run before I moved to North Carolina. So uh, I love uh, the West Side, uh, the Hudson River Greenway, probably my favorite. Um, and my places are run, Central Park, Prospect Park, uh, so, and uh, also Flushing, because I live downtown Brooklyn, so I would do an out and back on Flushing because it was nice and flat. Uh, but if I had to tell you my favorite place to run would be probably over the bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, hitting the Hudson River Greenway, going as far north to hit my miles and then return back. But I also run with my crews. Um, I run with Harlem Run, Lean Strong Fast, We Run Kings, a lot of different groups. So I'll join up with them in the morning. I loved doing the open streets in August. The weather was great. And so uh, that's a favorite, but that's only done like twice, you know, two weekends a year but I'd have to say the Hudson River Greenway by far is my favorite. Now, was there ever a time in your life where you were not running? Yes. And yes. what was that like? And when was that? Uh, so after college, um, I stopped running. I would run a five or 10K here and there. And then I really got serious uh, running in 2008. Uh, my brother tragically passed away, the one I used to run with. And I really, really struggled getting over his death. He died at the age of 49. And after going through all this therapy, nothing worked. They wanted to give me drugs and medication. I told them no. And then I realized, let me start running. And it, for me, it was the best therapy because I really connected with his spirit. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time. And that finally helped me get through you know, his tragic death. And I kept running and then I ended up in New York City and as commissioner, you know, I had drivers and meetings and dinners and lunches and stopped running. And then I went to see a doctor uh, 2016 and he gave me a wake up call and said, sir, I'm just going to be honest with you. He asked me if he could be honest with me and I said, sure. He said, with your schedule and your lifestyle and all the indicators I'm seeing from all the tests, he said, you're going to have a heart attack within the next year or two. I had gained about 35 more pounds than you see me right now. And he said, you need to change your lifestyle now. And so that next morning, that night, I told my wife and daughter, I got to change my diet, started walking. And then after a while, I said, wait a minute, I'm in Brooklyn now. My brother and I ran Prospect Park together. And I remembered my therapy back in 2008 and started running again in 2016. And that to me started a new journey. It was years later I met up, I mean, a year later with running groups, but initially it was just to get healthy. But then I was able to connect with my brother and literally run the same footsteps around the perimeter of Prospect Park, 
we ran together uh, when we were younger. I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your brother, but I'm also glad that you mentioned that you went to therapy and you felt that it didn't work for you. And I, I know that in the conversation from 2020 has been about mental health, especially about black men not seeking out that help when they are dealing with things as, as everyone else. So if you can talk a little bit about what was, that, what was that like for you back then and how do you see it now, the importance of like prioritizing. Well, I'm gonna be a little bit vulnerable here because I think people near, need to hear it. By August of last year, 2020, I was probably at the lowest point of my life. I was running an agency that, of essential workers that had to go to work, knowing they were terrified, watching a hospital be put up in Central Park, deaths at 800 a day at its peak in New York City, and I was trying to make sure our staff felt safe and supported. At the same time, going through what I witnessed of the death of George Floyd and personally feeling the pain of what I witnessed on television, the accumulation of all of that, of trying to be a leader for an agency, uh, to be a father, a husband, to be a friend, and to experience everything I was experiencing, I was broken. And I realized I was taking care of everyone else, but I wasn't taking care of myself. And so it became a very difficult point where I knew I had to seek out self-care because I just wasn't functioning properly. And I realized that during COVID, of uh, the stress, the anxiety, and trauma was taking its toll and had to understand the importance of self-care. Because as I started seeking help and realized the behavioral, spiritual, cognitive, I even have a chart I put up to show what it can do as a result of this stress, trauma, and anxiety. And not just from COVID, it's just being a black man my entire life. It took its toll. And in, and around September of last year, I sought out to get more self-care and help because I knew so many people were depending on me, but I wasn't being the person I needed to be because I wasn't taking care of myself. So I had to kind of take a time out. What happened to my brother was different. I just could not function at work. And I told the therapist, I said, the minute you prescribe drugs, I'm out the door. I need to find a way of getting through it, natural way of getting through it. Uh, but in 2020, it was different because it was the first time I felt as a black man, I can be me, that I did not have to check my black identity at the door. I could be myself without the fear of retaliation. And so for me, it was very liberating, but at the same time, it was painful because I had to confront a lifetime of suppressing and pushing down all those feelings because I could not share what I was really feeling. And so for me, that was an awakening, uh, not just for me, but for my staff. As a black commissioner, it was my goal to start creating a safe space for my black staff where they can share and communicate. All of our white allies were saying, what can I do? And I told them that is the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, how do you feel? Because in that conversation, people could understand, I just witnessed a man being murdered on television, transitioning to his mother as he's screaming her name. How does that make me feel? I don't care about what to do. You need to understand how I feel. And I was not alone. There were other staff members in our agency. And so we created this forum called Reflections 
where staff can get on and talk about how they feel. And that was powerful because I was the one that spoke first. It was a Zoom call. You could put your picture on. You could be anonymous. But we wanted to talk about how people felt. And as a commissioner, they were surprised. They were even surprised to know that I was out there protesting with all the running crews. And they said, the commissioner should have told us who would have been there right by your side. They were stunned that as an agency head, I too was protesting. And I told them that it, it was enough was enough. And I felt that I could no longer suppress and be kind of a gentleman about it. I wanted to be able to be a leader and to share with others about what it's like to suppress that for the 60 years of my life. And now I felt liberated, but with that liberation came a lot of pain, trauma and anxiety that I had to deal with. Yeah, I think we always, um, the conversation of generational trauma is always there and finding ways to heal from it, from things that, like you said, things that you suppress all your life, things that you suppress as a man, as a black man living in the South, living in New York. So would you say that how did the Juneteenth name it, Juneteenth Grove naming come about? And was that a healing step for you and your staff? Yes. So during these reflections call, after we wanted to hear how people felt, staff wanted to show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And we talked about some options. This was early June. And I'm the one that suggested, uh, let's find a place to recognize Juneteenth. It is a date along with Black Solidarity Day I knew about growing up. And so we started looking for the right place. And I said, it has to work, it has to fit. And so as my staff was looking, we decided that some options were Foley Square. Uh, and I know they're about to do a Black Lives Matter mural or Cadman Plaza. So my staff went out to scout Cadman Plaza and they got on the phone. I said, Commissioner, you will not believe it. I wanted it to be symbolic, not just a space. There were protests happening at Cadman Plaza. In fact, days after George Floyd passed away, his brother was at Cadman Plaza for a protest. So they called me and I said, it has to be symbolic. And they said, Commissioner, there are 19 benches in the plaza going into Cadman Plaza. And so we decided to plant 19 trees, to take the 19 benches and paint them to Pan-African colors and to name it Juneteenth Grove. We did that all in two weeks. We had to do the research, make sure there was no other name, and then staff themselves painted the benches and we also planted the trees. I had the privilege of praying for the tree that I planted because we want it to be a space for celebration, for protest, for healing, for reflection. And I cannot begin to tell you when we finished that day in 2020, there was a protest going by and to see people's faces, you saw the joy and pride that was in their face. And then in 2021, when it was officially named a federal holiday and a city holiday and a state holiday, there were so many people packed, not just in Cabin Plaza, but all over New York City. But I went to Cabin Plaza that day. There was a 5K race at Brooklyn Bridge and I passed there with so much pride and joy. So that's how the story came about. And then we went on to name more Black Solidarity Day, Black History Month, and then we did another round in 2021, uh, right before I left, uh, days before Juneteenth. So it feels right, it feels good, and now we can share the Black experience with other New Yorkers, but Juneteenth was the first. I think um, your naming that came full circle with your career path um, that you chose. 
Uh, before we talk about Parks Commissioner, I know that you pursued architecture and I wanted to understand what was your passion that led to that. And you did talk about briefly before we got on about your non-traditional path to your grad degree. So let's get into that a little bit. What led you to architecture and urban planning? It's interesting. Um, the World's Fair of 1964, my parents took me to, uh, it was Flushing Meadows Corona Park. And there was this huge model of a city right there. I later learned it's called a panorama. And I remember walking in that and looking at this model and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. There was something about seeing the model and a city that just moved something inside of me. So it's always a lesson to parents when you take a child to a museum or to an exhibit, you never know what lasting impact it'll have. After that, I could not get that model out of my head. I was fascinated by it. And then we lived a few blocks away from Prospect Park and that became our backyard. And I remember Prospect Park Botanic Garden seeing water in a babbling brook for the first time. I mean, I lived in hardcore Brooklyn. It's like, this, this, is, this is amazing. So there was something about the built environment that appealed to me, both the architecture, but also nature. And so as I went on in my career, I started sketching, you know, buildings and trees and nature. And ultimately, I wanted to pursue a degree in architecture. It later changed because I didn't just want to be about the physical. I wanted to plan not just for place, but for people. But that's how it all started, believe it or not, with the panorama. And I remember I was invited to speak at Queens Museum. And I saw the security guard. I says, oh, my goodness, when I was a kid, there was this big model. And then the security guard said, it's still here. I, I, I almost lost it. And then she went to the room, gave me the key, opened it up. And I was there by myself looking at the panorama and having the waves of my childhood and my parents come back. Took so many pictures, it's still there. So that's how it all started. Uh, so I'm very grateful for my parents not even knowing that I'd had that have an impact on me, but it did. Well, can I, that, that's an incredible story and an incredible moment. Um, you mentioned, like Jamie said before we got on, though, that you're. Um, you know, all, out of all these stories, they come from a very untraditional in American culture career path, where you mentioned that you dropped out of high school and had to come back from that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so my mother, uh, amazing woman, Haitian American, um, had got cancer uh, in August of 1971, and she passed away a year later in 1972. I think I had a brother and two sisters. We were devastated. Uh, I could not get my act together. And I couldn't understand why God could take this beautiful woman away from four innocent children. Uh, that led me to be very confused. And by the age of 16, I dropped out. The dropping out for me was very emotional. I did two years of high school. And I remember the day that I dropped out that my father uh, turned to me and punched me in the shoulder. I won't say what he said, but basically he just said, you had to drop out on Pearl Harbor Day. And I knew at that moment I broke my father's heart and I had to figure out how to make it up. Years later, uh, I decided to pursue architecture and I got my GED in uh, 1978, actually two years, about six months before I would have graduated, uh, took the SAT and attempted to enroll in Pratt Institute. It was the most humiliating experience of my life. Uh, during the interview, they laughed at me and 
asked me my favorite building and thought it was a joke. And then during the interview, they said, you're not college material. And so I left walking down Ryerson Walk at Pratt Institute. And this gentleman, uh, later known his name was Ken, uh, pulled me to the side and says, are you okay? Because I know what I was going to tell my father. I broke his heart once. And now I had to tell him because he was so happy you're going to be an architect that I didn't know what I was going to tell my father. And so he pulled me to the side and um, he said, uh, what's going on? I must have really looked bad. <laughs> and I told him the story and he told me to apply for this program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program. I did and I got in. And from that point on, I think my life entirely changed. Uh, I turned out to be student government president. I was a salutatorian of my graduating class and I really flourished because now I understood the value of education. To back up for a second, what really motivated me to go back to college, my mother and her wisdom taped on a cassette a message to all of us. And in it, she shared how we had to go to college. It was an imperative. So we didn't listen to that tape for years because it was hard to hear my mother's voice. When we heard that tape, when I heard that tape, and I said, I can't let her down. This woman was too amazing. I had to continue on her legacy of the great woman she was. So both that tape gave me the courage to apply for college. And I'll never forget, uh, as I was giving my speech on the deck of the Pratt Library is where they used to have the commencement. And I was selected and I was sharing my father, thank you for never giving up on me. He came running on the stage and uh, hugged me uh, because now it was really returning back that favor because I knew how much I had hurt him. And during my speech, he came up. I wasn't finished yet. And the crowd, the crowd was going crazy. The message was very personal. I was sharing a story about my mother and how my father never gave up on me. So it was a great moment. Uh, and I was very honored and proud. Uh, and so for that day on, I've been driven uh, to be the very best I can be for my father, for my mother, and both are no longer with us. But I remain driven because uh, they allowed me to be here on this planet allowed me to have these gifts and I'm determined to do the most that I can until my time is up. So these experiences make you who you are. And so when people look at me and try to say, oh, you're this, you're that, you're special, I said, no, I was given a gift, but they don't know my journey. I am so grateful, grateful that I had given these gifts that now I could turn back and fight, you know, New York City parks, for the unrepresented and the underprivileged and communities and parks that have been neglected because I know what it feels like. I got a second chance and I wanna make sure these communities also get a chance to thrive because every community deserves quality spaces. They deserve safe places. And so my entire journey has allowed me to provide that to, to very deserving people. I remember I had the same rejection feeling in high school. Do you, you know, like a guidance counselor told me I was crazy for applying to certain schools. Do you feel that that rejection from Pratt may have been more of a motivator for you to really like be the type of person that you are mm -hmm. where I've noticed that you do fight or not fight, but you really, you put a lot of effort to do yeah. what's right. You know, Jamie, what I've learned, uh, and this is a lesson that I've now shared with others, that tough times are going to come, but you have two choices, to be bitter or to be better. And so when these tough times come, 
I somewhat get excited because I know this is a growth opportunity for me. At the time it was devastated. So I allowed these tough moments to help me get stronger and better rather than bitter because it never produces any good outcomes. I know people who don't get the job and they're bitter. But to me, I kind of, now when tough times come, I'm like, I get excited because I know this is an opportunity for me to get stronger and better. I mean, I've learned that years later, but yeah, that Pratt Institute experience was a punch in the gut, more so because I did not want to go home and tell my father what happened. Instead, I was able to share better news about the opportunity for, you know, the scholarship through HEOP. Uh, but yeah, it was tough. And I think it sometimes it does motivate you. But now, in my later years, I've learned that when these tough times come, you got two choices, and I'm always going to choose better over bitter. I love the fact that this, this segment that you just did could be the, the audio to your, your memoir that I hope you're writing someday to inspire future kids, to let them know how the kid from Brooklyn who dropped out of high school went on to be New York City Prize Commissioner. And that is a very big deal because there are not that many commissioners in administrations throughout the country and definitely not in New York City. You know, um, it's interesting, Ina, as you said that, because those people that know me, when they heard the news when I was in North Carolina, that was the first thing they said who knew me. They said, I cannot believe a high school dropout from New York City is coming back to lead the Parks Department and how moved they were that I was coming home and how proud because they knew my story, they knew my journey. And I have to tell you, being a high school dropout, it was not easy. I, I had to take remedial classes just to get at level with everyone else and the level of determination and resilience that it takes. Because uh, I told my sons, don't take this path you've got to have that grit and determination because it's not easy just to get on par with everyone else. But I was able to do it. And like I said, I was driven by my mother uh, who left her tape and I knew how important it was to really uh, uh, help my father because of course, who wants to have a child that drops out of high school? All my siblings graduated. Uh, so for me, yeah, it was a motivating factor, but you're right. It was something that when I look back, I always wonder, should I share this story? Because I don't want people to think, oh, I could drop out and be a success. I'd rather you stay in school and follow the traditional path because my path was not easy. A lot of stigma. I didn't have a prom. I didn't enjoy all the things you do from high school. I mean, you missed all those things. I did two years. So I didn't have chemistry or physics, all that stuff I had to learn uh, when I was in college. So it was a lot of remedial work. It could be done, but you have to realize it takes a lot of drive and determination to make sure you complete that course. So then how did you end up coming back to New York, being commissioner, and then blending your two passions, city planning, parks, and eventually well, running? Yeah, I don't know if you know the story. So I was in Raleigh and, you know, I was president of the American Planning Association, traveling the world, speaking. You know, I made a name for myself more in North Carolina and being president of the American Planning Association than I did in New York. But once de Blasio was elected, people kept saying, your name keeps coming up. And I'm like, oh, come on, stop. I'm in Raleigh now. Who knows who's Raleigh? He says, no, seriously, your name keeps coming up. 
I finally get a call from the transition team and uh, they, I interviewed for one position. I didn't really want it. It didn't work out, which was fine. So I said, okay, I'm staying in Raleigh. It's cool. Life is good. Then I get a call and said, would you consider parks commissioner? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. And they go, why? I said, because parks is 80% operations and 20% planning. I'm a planner. And the answer was ultimately- Wait, wait, to... you're kind of giving us a little bit of jargon. So when you said 80% operations- Operations. Parks is an operation department. Planning is planning for the future. It's designing cities. Operations, it's running trucks and maintenance and cleaning parks. So when it says 80% operations, it's just running the day-to-day of cleaning parks, trimming trees, cutting grass, fixing benches. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a planner. I plan for cities to rebuild cities and neighborhoods and communities. So I felt it wasn't a good fit. Uh, but they came back and said, that's what we want you. We want to be able to rethink parks in the 21st century. And we believe as a planner, you can help us get there. When I met with the mayor, he told me about his tale of two cities, very concerned about equity. And when he said equity, I was like, oh, no, he got me. He got me. So uh, I thought about it, had a good meeting with the mayor. But two days later, he offered me a position. I had to think about it because I was also being interviewed for another position at another city. And I felt it was time to come home and to see what I can do to really help create a 21st century park system. But the equity piece was really what got to me because I grew up in New York. I knew what Prospect Park looked like in the 70s. I knew what those playgrounds looked like back in the 70s. And so I did want to play a role in the next generation of creating 21st century parks. And so I said, yes. And, and how do you look back now on your years that have just finished up? Are you happy or satisfied if you could ever be satisfied with you know, achieving equity through parks? Yeah, well, first, I would love to stay in that job for the rest of my life, but that is not my call. Uh, it is by far the best experience of my life. Um, when I look back, you know, we developed the Community Parks Initiative. We were able to focus on parks that have been neglected for two decades in neighborhoods that we could all recognize, South Bronx, Northern Manhattan, Northern Brooklyn, South Brooklyn. It was a joy and a privilege that we were able to do 60 parks before I left. Uh, we did our Cool Pools initiative. We took what were embarrassing public spaces and made them from a pool to a place where people felt more dignified and proud uh, to be in these public spaces. Uh, we did uh, anchor parks. People wanted to have all the new parks. I said, no, let's make our old parks new again. So we invested over $150 million on parks that have been neglected, larger parks, Astoria, for example, we redid the track, I'm sure you've all been there, to really make this an amazing place. Um, and then we did Parks Without Borders. We started taking down fences and borders to make our parks more accessible, changing rules. You can now loiter in our parks. We had signs in our parks that you couldn't loiter. So you all know the word loitering means to sit or stand idly by with no apparent purpose. That's what you do in parks. If you're a white couple sitting on a bench, you're not loitering. But if you're five black and brown teenagers, you're considered loitering. So we can racialize that sign. And so in 2017, those signs were removed as part of the city council's criminal justice reform act. Those are the things I'm most proud of. But I don't know if you know this, but Prospect Park now has a new entrance on Flatbush Avenue. That was inspired by my brother and I 
running around Prospect Park way back in the 1970s. And I'm like, why isn't there an entrance on Flappish Avenue but for the zoo? And so in late 2020, as part of our Parks Order Borders, we're able to open up that entrance. I kind of want to call it Silver's Gate after my brother, but that's just a little plug. But it was so proud that uh, that inspired by my brother, we now have an entrance into Prospect Park on the side of the park that was very basically cut off from Prospect Park. What I'm most proud of is the culture of care. It was the last op-ed I wrote. When I came on board, there was a newspaper that thought it was a joke. I want to shift from maintenance to care because to me, maintenance is a checklist. Caring comes from a different part of the soul. I have a 23-year-old daughter. When I raised her, I didn't maintain her. I cared for her. So we wanted to have this culture of care for our employees, for our parks, for our volunteers. And that is something that is most important to me because to me, our parks, particularly during COVID, became our sanctuaries of sanity. So when I look back, there's certainly more I can do. There's certainly more I wanted to do. But the culture of care, the community parks initiative, the parks at our borders, the anchor parks, the cool pools, just a little bit of what I was able to do. But we completed over 850 projects in my seven years, many of them in communities that were underserved. And as runners, we got McCarran track, we got Astoria track, Red Hook is next, we got the Lower East Side in East River Park, we got to redo some of these tracks, and oh, Brownsville in Betsy Head, that one was embarrassing. And a group called We Run Brownsville invited me out and I saw so many potholes. I don't even know how they ran on this track. That was one of our anchor parks. And if you go to Betsy Head now, it will make you cry. That place is beautiful. We made it more open. And to me, it's just a joy to see uh, people out there just having a great time in a public space. I have so many stories about CPI. I don't want to bore you all, but my yeah. goodness, the testimonials are powerful. Well, we'll have you back when there's a big announcement, hint, hint. Uh, so tell me about, now that you're parks commissioner, you're back to running, you're connecting with your brother and his spirit. What was it like for you to finish your first marathon in Central Park? Wow. Okay, you're going to get me emotional again. Um, we're, we're first, I dedicated, uh, I dedicated the race to my brother. My best friend, April Cargill, we go back to Pratt. She's still my buddy. Some people think we're married. We're not, we're best friends, but April is like super cool. Both of us ran with for Sam, a hashtag on our arms. And I, you know, we're somewhat competitive. He never ran a marathon. I got it first, but he was with me and uh, I dedicated my running journey and a marathon to my brother. Before we got to the finish line, ABC News did a profile. Um, they usually profile people who run the marathons, but they did one on, on me and I was able to talk about my brother and why I was running. And I don't know who was up to this, but you know, they have these cheer cards. So as April and I are running up Fifth Avenue, they had this big jumbotron right as you enter Engineers Gate on 90th Street. And April tapped me and said, oh my God, there was a picture of my brother from high school, a black and white picture of him running. And I was struggling up Fifth Avenue. I mean, y'all know when you run the marathon, 
you're at the late miles, Fifth Avenue, that long, long uphill climb. But when I saw him, something just triggered in me. Um, I was able to finish uh, and cross the line. And my wife was there and I told her what happened and fell into her arms. Um, it was a beautiful scene because my brother was with me the entire time. But what I don't know if it's Bib activated, uh, but to see a picture of him in his high school with his Afro and his Nike sneakers, uh, the orange runner who does the cartoons actually drew one for me and gave it to me, which was absolutely beautiful because uh, he saw the retro Nike. Uh, it was a moment I will never forget. The first marathon is always special, but that one was extra special. And to cross that line and under five hours at the age of 58, I was very happy. Uh, but I knew my brother was with me the entire journey in April by my side. So it is experience I will never forget. And so I just thank God that um, I had those memories of my brother and that hashtag, uh, you know, for Sam to, to really focus this whole experience with him. Okay, this is like therapy. <laughs> Oof. Okay. And, and, and we are happy to be part of it. And you know what, actually, 2017 was also my first marathon. It was also New York City. Really? Yeah. And I can attest to what the feeling of the first marathon, it just never comes back. You're no right. How many you do after that? It's just that first time, like, whatever is getting you to the starting line and to the finish is special. And it's just, you can't recreate it. So now tell us about your introduction to Harlem Run and running with the cruise. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Well, uh, so I ran alone. Um, I would never would run with groups. And my best friend, uh, April, um, we kind of realized we went to Percy Sutton because I joined Roadrunners because now I said, okay, I can run. Let me join Roadrunners. And we were at Percy Sutton in April. I was like, I even know she ran. And like people who run do nothing but talk about running. So we would hang out. And so she saw me, she says, okay, once Harlem Run saw us in a picture together, they said, ah, you know, Allison, I'm sure you know Allison and Amir. They said, you got to come out to Harlem Run. And I was telling, I said, April, I don't do groups. I don't do groups. She says, oh, they want to meet you. So to make a long story short, um, I started the first Monday in 2017. And I remember the weather wasn't great. And I'm like, okay, y'all certainly aren't going to run because it's kind of misty, it's cold. And I remember the Harlem Run team says, okay, we run every Monday. You don't have to come, but we're running. So I showed up and people were excited. I found out later they had commissioner rules, which I didn't know about. So our first run, because um, I was leery about groups because I, as a commissioner, I was trying to be very guarded. We're going up Harlem Hill. I never ran up Harlem Hill before. And I started slowing down and this woman, I don't remember who she, to this day, I don't know who she is, slowed down and turned to me and said, I'm not leaving you. And, and something in me moved because I thought that was so beautiful about leaving no person behind. From that point on, I was hooked. Even though I'm a kid from Brooklyn, I ran with Harlem Run, everybody thinks I'm from Harlem, uh, but I very quickly became very bonded and had another family. Um, I've now been with Harlem Run since 2017. Um, they're now my family. Uh, when I go to New York, I'm going the weekend just to run the Bronx 10 so I can see my family and either run or cheer. Uh, but now uh, to see what they're involved in, it's not just about running, it's the community 
of running and the things they do for the larger community, uh, I just got hooked and I've been with Harlem Run ever since. And now I know a lot more of the other running crews. And uh, as commissioner, I would just pop up, you know, boogie down. I would just pop up, you know, just to run with them. Start line runners and Queens distant run. I just pop up uh, because I really wanted to connect. And I was so overwhelmed by the beautiful running crews of color that were out there uh, and all the work that they were doing. Very diverse, but I just wanted to connect more with all the runners out there. But it all started with Harlem Run and April Cargill. So I have a question that ties together some running and some planning stuff. I've always been, um, sometimes I find myself thinking about this Robert Caro line that I read where he said he went to grad school for planning and he said, everything they're teaching me is wrong. The highways in New York City go where Robert Moses says they go. And that's a very typical American story where highways come in, uh, white planners, and they rip apart communities, marginalized communities, black and Latino communities. Um, seen it happen in New York. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I watched it happen in Pittsburgh. And in, when we're running, you know, you don't want to be running next to a highway. And we're starting to see some rethinking of that across the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I run in Inwood Park and Van Cortlandt Park. And there are highways that run through them. And at the same time, as I don't like running next to them, those highways get me to nature upstate pretty quickly. So it's a very interesting and complex, um, you know, thoughts going through my head. Right. I was curious what you think about when you see some of um, the way that communities have been disrupted by highways for car culture often, you know, and how you as a runner and a planner reckon with that and think about the future of running and highways in the country? Well, let me just say when it comes, great question, because I know you're tapping into my planning and running, so very good question. Uh, first, I'd like to share with people there were two Robert Moseses. There's a pre-war and a post-war. If you research Robert Moses, and I sat in his office, or he sat in my office, um, he did a lot of good work uh, of really broadening parks and recreation. In fact, the term parks and recreation came out of the Robert Moses era that kids were drowning in the river and getting killed on the street and provided these recreational opportunities where they can be safe and have a place that they can play. It was the post-war Robert Moses that was the most destructive. And he selectively picked neighborhoods where to put these highways. He could have put them in a lot of other places, but he didn't. And so you're right, the Cross Bronx Expressway, designing the Southern State Parkway, where the overhangs were low, where buses couldn't get through to make sure certain populations wouldn't go out to the beaches. We now know uh, books like um, The Color of Law, that racism was baked into the New Deal from redlining to urban renewal. And we're now dealing, uh, including Robert Moses, uh, with that very ugly past. I'm very pleased the Biden administration recognized the scars that our highway system had placed on many neighborhoods from New Orleans to St. Louis to New York to Newark, you know, East Orange. This story after story, and many times these went right through low income or communities of color. And so we have to come to terms with that. Yes, we have highways that get us to places, but it's where you located that highway to me was the problem. And so uh, we're now coming to terms with how to fix that. Uh, the, the administration want to do 20 billion. They want to do 1 billion to fix this. Not enough. 
They want to cap the BQE, that project alone is probably going to be $2 billion. But at least as an acknowledgement that this was done on purpose, I used to teach courses at Brooklyn College on planning. The number one subject when I asked students to do a term paper was how the Cross Bronx Expressway and other, and other Robert Moses projects destroyed their neighborhood. And so there is this point of reckoning. As a runner, I'm very troubled by the FDR drive. I look at the east side and the west side, and to me, the FDR just hurts the experience of this mini little tiny esplanade, yet we got it right on the west side by not doing a highway and having a boulevard where people have a lot of access points at grade and not these crazy overhead to get to the east side of, of Manhattan. So uh, yes, cities are layers of history. Robert Moses was part of it, but I was very privileged as commissioner that I can undo some of the bad things that Robert Moses did. And hopefully there are lessons learned going forward that we will not ram through these interstates through communities. So that is my hope for the future. So now that you're no longer commissioner, but you are touring the country, giving talks on like city planning and parks planning, who would you like to collaborate with as you continue to just basically expand the legacy that you've left in New York, the very rich legacy in, in other cities? Like who would you want to co collaborate with, especially also for runners? Because now wherever you go, I'm pretty sure you're looking for a place to run. And then that's, that's going to give you a perspective. Like, wait, maybe this could be different. Right. Well, now being, I'll just put it this way, a, a, a senior member of my profession, you know, I want to make sure I impart wisdom to other planners. I mean, I'm here at a conference in, the, in, the, uh, in Nebraska wanting to share my wisdom of what I've learned in my career so that I can share this knowledge so it can be replicated. Uh, so I work with cities. Uh, I work with universities. Uh, I work with counties, state governments. I travel overseas and work with other state governments just to share with them why it is important to plan and plan the right way, not just for place, but for people. So that's something that I certainly like to do, the writing, the speaking. And so all of my speeches is about parks, planning, public space, cities, neighborhoods, but focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and not the campaign people are talking about, what it really means to plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In terms of running, being a runner, it's great when you travel, unless it's hot, 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 and so treadmills are always an option, but it also helps me explore the city. That's one thing I love about running is that on foot, you can explore the city. There are apps out there, map, you know, my run, all trails. So it's very easy to find a place to run unless you're in the middle of a rural area. But even out where I am, there's this trail that goes around the city. And so I'll be running that. Uh, but I also want to make sure whether it's Roadrunners or other organizations, I could share with them the importance of making sure that diversity, equity, inclusion is not something you do, it's who you are. And that's the biggest frustration I have. After Black Lives Matter, everybody's down with DEI. It is each one of those words means something special. And so the speech I've been giving lately is breaking down what diversity means, what equity means, what inclusion means, but then this is how you do it. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. It's like a campaign for kindness. Either you're kind or you're not kind. You can't put on a campaign. And far too often, people are kind of giving themselves a buy by hiring a diversity officer or hiring a diversity committee. No, it has to be the entire leadership team. 
you have to embrace this as a principle and don't be a scapegoat and hire a diversity officer or a diversity committee that absolves you from the responsibility. You have to understand equity means fairness. Everyone knows what fairness means. Diversity is the value of different perspectives and inclusion is to be welcoming to all. The true test, if I'm in a public space, whether I'm running or walking, do I feel welcome here? Do I belong here? And if the answer is no, you better check yourself to find out why. When I start a new job, do I feel welcome here? That to me is what inclusion means. Equity is about fairness, which every person from a child to an adult understands fairness and get away from the equitable this and the equitable that. Let's not complicate it, it's about fairness. And so to me, whether it's running, whether it's planning, whatever I do, diversity, equity, inclusion, I wanna make sure it's not something you do, it's who you are. Because I now look with everything with a very different lens. I've been doing this for 30 years. I didn't get the religion after Black Lives Matter. This has been my entire life from the day I started practicing architecture planning and later on parks. I'm glad that you mentioned DEI because from, you know, the uprise from 2020, we've seen a lot of like running organizations, like running groups, now that they have this DEI agenda. And as you talked about earlier, and, you know, seeing revitalizing parks that were in neighborhoods that were just left behind because, you know what, the people who live there don't exercise, so we don't need to fix that part. So I'm glad that you mentioned like the importance of like not just having a committee, but also like giving those people that you're bringing in the power to have their voices heard and make decisions, not just be like, no, look, we have the numbers, but if you're like, you're not empowering those people, then what is the point of your DEI group? Exactly. Like, like I said, I mean, that's the major message I give people. I make sure they understand it's not just represent and reflect because very often it's represent and reflect. No, I don't just want to represent and reflect. I want to have the authority and the power to change things. As a man of color to head up an agency, I wanted to have the power and authority to rename spaces. I wanted to have the power and authority to put in place real diversity training and gets to the heart of what's going on. I want to have the power and authority to go ahead and make sure I attract the right kind of staff. Because very often people don't realize being a person of color is a qualification. The tough resilience we had to go through in our lives, that in of itself is a major qualification from dealing with lifelong generational trauma being turned down for job after job, yet you show up again, going in a workplace, keeping silent, being a person of color in and of itself, in my opinion, is a qualification. So we made sure I had a diverse staff. I converted our equal opportunity officer into a commissioner level position that focused specifically on diversity, equity, inclusion, and access in a real way, making sure that there were not enough women being applying for crew chiefs, we tell them, no, you need to apply. <laughs> and so for me, it was just gratifying that I didn't just want to represent and reflect. I wanted to use my power to change things. And far too often, we need a black person on the board. We need a person of color. We need a Latina here. It's like, no, give them the power to make change and not sit in a seat to represent and reflect. So that's something that's near and dear to me. You're going to put me in a position I'm making some noise. I want to make some decisions. I need some power. 
I need some authority. Then I can represent and reflect. I like that you said DEI is not what you do, it's who you are. That could also be, you know, our second motto tagline for like, let's get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable and really be who you are and not, and not just do it. So before we head into Hot Mic, uh, you mentioned that you're training for Chicago and New York. Uh, what is running like in North Carolina right now? It's hard. Um, number one, I don't have a crew. Uh, so I had to run a 20 mile by myself. They don't have the grid of New York City. They have trails. And so for the short miles, I can run downtown on a grid up to six miles. But the long runs, I did a 20 mile. It was a hot day. Their trails do not have water fountains. And so for the 20 mile, it was a hot day. I started early. I had a two liter bladder, plus I had another bottle in my pouch and I ran out of water. And so the last five miles, had to run walk because I started noticing I stopped sweating and we all know that's not a good sign. So for me, it's a struggle one running alone. Um, I love to see, to run through cities uh, and to run just on a trail. It was beautiful, it was beautiful. But the fact that uh, I did not have a crew that could have stations where I can recharge and refuel and get some more water. So for the long runs, it's a challenge uh, and it's just change of scenery. Uh, like Jamie, I love running the streets, the bridges, seeing the murals, smelling the food, you know, I mean, just all of that. And so I'm missing that dearly. So the transition has been very, very difficult. Now, the good news is um, I'm not running the full 22. I'm running Chicago in a few weeks. That will be my long, long run, taking two weeks off, and then I'll get ready for New York. This hasn't been my best training season because I was relocating from Brooklyn to North Carolina. So I wasn't doing my full three to four runs a week doing two. And so I'm a little bit worried uh, getting through it, but I, I'm pretty sure I will. Uh, so I think I'll be better prepared for New York, but I signed up for Chicago, tickets purchased, hotel room purchased, paid the fee, and I'll be there. I heard Chicago's flat. They better be telling me the truth. I hope the weather's great. I no, ran it. Before. It really is I flat. Chicago is really is flat. It's, it's flat, okay. and it can get hot. It could either be hot, or it could be breezy. So right. I heard. Hot. So, um, I mean, I trained out in North Carolina. Like when I finished that run, twenty miles, it was upper eighties, but like super humid. So, uh, you know, you know, you got to train in all situations so you're ready for race day. But it's been a challenge. I think mostly I miss the crews. I miss them a lot because to me, what makes training fun is the people I run with uh, and I miss them dearly. And I'm trying to experiment with some crews. I went, ran with one, one crew on Monday, uh, but you love the culture of your crews and the pacers and you know the personalities. So for me, it's been a very, very, very difficult transition. Well, speaking of transitions, we are gonna transition towards the end of our session. And this is where we're gonna get into the hot mic. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with our hot mic. Uh, it's going to be a two-minute talk on whatever you want to leave your listeners with a lasting impression or a lasting message. Wow. <laughs> so you know when that starts. Wow, I dropped so much stuff. I got to dig down deep. Um, you're yeah, you're I do, keynote, I do have, so I'm sure you're, you're going to be king of this. Nathan, I, I show him your stopwatch. 
Okay. Very I old do school. have one. Have <laughs> so let me quickly tell you the story because this is one story that probably changed my life as a leader, but also as a father, as a friend. So quick story. Uh, second quick year story before the hot mic. Oh, you've got. Oh, this is the hot. Oh, no, we're not in the hot mic yet. Oh, I'll wait for the hot. Would mic. you like? Thought... Would Would you like to be in the hot mic now? Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. All right, Nathan, go. Okay, let me see the timer so I know how much time I have. Just All go right. for it. So very quick story. Um, second year of marriage, my wife and I had an argument, and I thought she should apologize. Uh, but I felt God said, no, you be the man. You need to apologize. I didn't want to apologize, but I said, okay. Went out, bought some flowers, came home, gave it to my wife, and I said, I'm sorry. No sooner did I get to the bedroom door, I felt God said, stop. I don't want you to give her the flowers. I want you to be the flowers. If you are really sorry, I want you to be the fragrance in this home that will set a very different tone, not to bring in darkness, but to bring in sunshine where she can thrive and flourish. That was probably the most powerful message I could have received as a husband, as a father, but more importantly, as a boss. I set the tone for the environment. When I come into an office, when I come home, I wanna make sure I provide an atmosphere where people can grow and flourish and not darkness where they shrivel up. We've all had bosses that walk through the door and tense up or someone, a father or someone coming home that you hear the turn of the key and the kids tense up. My goal as a father, as a husband and as a, a leader of an organization is to set the tone to make sure that people can grow, flourish and thrive. And to me, that is something that I've lived by that experience. Way back I've learned in my second year of marriage if I had to define who I am as a person, I don't want to act sorry. I want to be sorry. I don't want to act kind. I want to be kind. And that takes effort. And so that's the message I want to leave. It has helped me be the person I am today. And I hope people can walk away and learn from that message. Nathan, what's the verdict? Like a true, oh my God. Like a true public speaker, you come in right under two minutes. Oh my God, oh, one, five, time. nine. He's a sub two. You got that. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you something. That story, um, I, I, I remember, I know we're off now. I remember I was in Arsenal. Um, this is where our office is in Central Park. And I, sh I rarely share that story. And I did that one time. And this young girl, about 12 years old, broke out hysterically in tears. And I realized then I told Steph, go to her. My guess is her father, when he comes home, had the opposite experience. And so even during COVID, um, when I came home having a tough day, my daughter actually, she knows the story. She said, dad, can you go outside, turn the lock, gather yourself, turn it, come back in and please come in with the right energy. It was moving that she remembered that story. She said, please don't bring the work home and confect the entire house with the energy. And so even my daughter remembered that story. And from that day on, in the middle of COVID around April, I remembered I gather myself when I come home because I want to bring sunshine into my home and not darkness, including my staff. During COVID, they were like saying, you were amazing because I knew I had to bring that brightness, that sunshine that they can get through this very, very dark period. That is a wonderful way to wrap up our show. Mitchell Silver, um, 
the People's Commissioner of New York City Parks, former commissioner, former president of American Planning Association, and many other titles and in the past and many more titles to come, hopefully. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredible um, episode. You brought a lot of wisdom and experience and tales that are sure to motivate and inspire all of us to be our best selves. That's exactly why we have this podcast. So thank you again. And of course, thank you to my co-hosts, Jamie and Inez. Inez, um, Commissioner, if you don't know, is also our producer and our editor and our booking agent. She does everything. Um, PR, and- social media. I mean, she's Inez even our therapist. A long time ago, and then she said, I'll, I'll wait till you're not commissioner anymore. Yeah, she's also our therapist. Uh, <laughs> everything. Well, thank you. I didn't expect, I know we had our pre-call, but wow, this was uh, therapeutic. I, I have to thank you because I don't often uh, share some of those things, but it, 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 it felt good. And hopefully it can help someone else, which is the most important thing. Really and I glad. really miss New York. I can't wait. My daughter's there. She's in Williamsburg, you know, Domino Park. So that's where I'll be visiting her in a couple of weeks. And uh, I can't wait to run New York City streets again. Smell the air. There's nothing more that I love than the the trash smell in a New York City late summer. It's the best for <laughs> or running. The smell after it rains, I can never describe it. You know, after a hot, hot day and it rains, this kind of chalky, I don't know what it is, but it's so New York. I love that. New York has a smell. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I've got one person or entity left to thank, and that's our listeners. We'll talk to you on the next time, next episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store and follow us on Spotify.